And now hear God's holy word from Psalm 54. Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you and give you thanks for this congregation that you have assembled before your throne today. And we thank you that as we have come to you bearing our, 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 our transgressions and our sins before you and asking your forgiveness, that you have lifted the burden and you have forgiven us. And now we settle into rest to hear your voice and we look forward to eating at your table. So bless us with each ministry of word and sacrament today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Maybe seated. There's a story that uh, goes around among pastors anytime that a new uh, ministerial candidate is going to be ordained. As we did at our past um, presbytery meeting here a few weeks ago, we ordained a young minister and we always pass around the same old stories. And one story that keeps getting passed around is about the ordination examination of a reformed Episcopal. Uh, pastoral candidate. There was an old bishop whose approval was necessary in order for this young candidate to pass his exam. He wasn't going to pass unless the older bishop allowed him to. And so the bishop asked the prospective pastor, he said, if you're going to be a pastor, what is the most important book of the Bible for counseling people and for addressing their emotional and spiritual problems? And the candidate very wisely replied, I would say, the book of Psalms. The Psalms are at the heart of biblical counsel. The bishop agreed. He said, absolutely, that's correct. Then he asked, if you're going to be a pastor and if you're going to lead in worship, what is the most important book of the Bible on the topic of worship, for learning about worship and for leading people in the worship of God? And the younger man replied again, well, that would also be the book of the Psalms. That'd be the Psalter. So continuing, the bishop asks, so the book of Psalms is the most important book for you to know as a pastor for counseling and for worship. Is that correct? And the candidate answered, yes, that's correct. I think it is. Well, then, the bishop replied, beginning with Psalm 1, go through the entire book of Psalms and give me a brief synopsis and a summary of every single psalm along the way. If it's that critical, in other words, that, that you know the Psalter for counseling, for instruction, for exhortation, for uh, consolation, for worship, then you ought to be able to name them all and to give me a summary. Well, the candidate began to do just that. He started with Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of Yahweh. And Psalm 2, why do heathen nations vainly rage? And Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 and, Psalm, and then he, he kind of fizzled out around Psalm 11. And he couldn't continue. So the bishop told him, you aren't ready to be a pastor yet. Come back when you can do them all. Uh, that question, summarize all 150 psalms, strikes fear 
into the heart of even the most seasoned Bible scholar and pastor. And yet, it's a critical question. If the Psalter is indeed as vital to the Christian life as that young ministerial candidate said it was, what is our excuse, any of us, for not knowing the Psalter thoroughly enough to provide a quick summary of all 150 Psalms? Now, I don't have an excuse, but I know the reason that we can't do that. And that is for the past couple of hundred years in our country, among the majority of Christians, the Psalms have no longer been considered the backbone, the centerpiece of worship and Christian education. We, we ought to, and certainly if, if they are, we ought to start, if they are as critical as we, I think, all would affirm that they are, we start from the Psalms and we build out from there. But, but we've neglected their use, even though throughout all of church history and throughout most of the rest of the church throughout the world today, the Psalms are the centerpiece of worship and education because man was not created to be simply homo uh, uh, sapiens, not uh, homo sapiens thinking man. We're not simply thinking man, but we're created to be homo adorans, worshiping man. Our first and highest calling is worshiper. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And out of faithfulness to that role as worshiper uh, flows all other faithfulness to other areas and roles and pursuits and callings. But Christendom was built upon the foundation of a psalm singing church, wherein chapels and churches and monasteries, all 150 psalms were sung regularly. In monasteries, they did all 150 psalms every week. They started at Psalm 1 and worked their way all the way through 150 and started over the following week. And that is the foundation of Christendom. That is the foundation of the culture that we take for granted. But we're smarter than God today, and we believe that more important than creating worshipers is creating people who can make big mortgage payments. That's what's most important. Those who can sustain, you know, car payments and boat payments. That's what we're looking for. We don't need the Psalms anymore to get there. We certainly don't need to sing them. We don't need to pray them or study them. We barely need to flip through them. And of course, we do this to our own hurt, honestly. If we are to be biblical, if we are to place the highest value that we can on the words of Scripture and allow the Bible to shape our view of God and what he expects of us, then we cannot ignore the core of the Bible's teaching on how to approach him in worship. And that is found in the Psalms. Our, our children especially must be steeped in the world of the Psalms. Now, I get it though. As I said last week, much of the neglect of the Psalms can be attributed to our misunderstanding of the Psalms. We believe that it's somehow a contradiction or an inconsistency or hypocrisy in asking God, as the Psalms often do, in asking God to judge our enemies when Jesus told us to love our enemies. Well, last week, we took an honest look at some of that language in the Psalms that's scary and rough, and we work to understand how it is that we can pray those things. And in fact, praying those things is loving our enemies the way that Jesus told us to. And, and we saw how God really does want us to be praying that way. He wants to hear those words in certain circumstances. But, but even if you take all of the imprecatory psalms, those psalms that call for God's judgment, even if you take all of those out of the mix, still the rest of the psalms aren't all puppies and ice cream and rainbows, are they? 
No, there are far more psalms of lament than psalms of pure praise and thanksgiving without any complaint. There are about a third of the psalms are lamentations. The psalms overwhelmingly express anger and confusion and loss and hurt and rage. And so some critics of the Psalms, those who say the church shouldn't be using the Psalms in any capacity today, go so far as to describe the Psalms as depressing and irrelevant. They believe that the Christian life is always happy and joyful and fulfilling and problem-free. So the Psalms are just kind of a drag, kind of a downer. Well, it's a gross error to say that we are called to a life of zero sadness. It is a gross error to say that you are called to a life without suffering and that we're to be holy and happy all the time. That uh, holiness therefore equals happiness and happiness equals holiness is what I'm saying. We are to be holy all the time, but that does not always mean giddy. That doesn't always mean silly. Furthermore, it's naive and it's immature to think that there are no dull parts, that there are to be no sad parts, no bitter parts, no mundane parts to life. That is naive and that is simple. Jesus never sinned. He never did anything that was displeasing to the Father. Jesus never rebelled. Jesus never disobeyed. And Jesus wept. Jesus, the sinless God-man, wept. He wept, certainly, at the grave of Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He grieved in the garden of Gethsemane. He cried out on the cross. Jesus was a perfect man, and he suffered, and he was sad, and he endured torment and suffering, and he didn't paint on a happy face and pretend that everything was fine when clearly it wasn't. So if you and I are to be like him... If we're going to be conformed to his image, then we, like him, must learn how to grieve properly, to grieve in holiness. How how are we holy in our sadness and in our weeping? And where do we learn how to be holy in sadness but through the Psalms? So last week I made a case for for singing and praying the so-called scary Psalms. This week I want to spend a little time considering the sad Psalms and ask why do we need them? And I just have a few things to give you to think about on that subject. Why do we need the sad psalms? The first reason that we need them is that they give holy, righteous shape to confusing, conflicted, worrisome thoughts. The longer I spend in ministry and the more time I spend working to help people correctly respond to ugly, horrible, sad, sinful situations, when I'm trying to help people biblically respond to their own sin and the sins of other people, the more I do that, the more I observe this odd behavior pattern. And then after I recognized it in others, I started to recognize it myself. But sometimes we're angry or we're hurt or we're anxious or we're confused or we're stressed, but there isn't a real clear cause for all of this. There's not a rational reason why we're feeling out of joint or angry. But we can't just let go of the anger or the frustration. No, we can't do that. And I'm not sure we even always do this consciously, but we have to because we're feeling out of joint, because we're feeling anxious or angry or sad or alone or scared, we have to assign a reason to that. We have to assign some reason to the anger. Of course, a reason that has nothing to do with our own doubts, fears, and faithlessness, that reason must be somewhere else. 
And so we blame the closest person to our situation. Or we pile on a popular scapegoat. Whoever's getting the, the, the bad end of the stick today, that's the person we pile up on. Or we level accusations against our family members who have nothing at all to do with our problem, really. But it's this odd behavior that we start with this nasty feeling and we don't know where it came from. And rationally, there's no cause for it. But then we, we assign the cause to someone. It's, it's odd and I don't understand it, but I keep seeing it. And it's destructive. It's wicked. Right down at the bottom, it's satanic. Satan is the accuser, right? And what are we doing when we have this wad of negative, bad stuff? We, we accuse somebody for being the cause of it. Well, rather than, rather than doing that, the, the Psalms give us the right way to deal with irrational frustration along with very rational frustration as well. Sometimes our, our, our hurt, our anger, our sadness does have a real cause. But what the Psalms do is give us shape for expressing these things. All of us go through times where we feel like everything is a mess. We get legitimately sad or confused or we feel powerless We're incapable of making a decision. We're angry at our circumstances. We're angry at people who could have helped us, but didn't help us. We feel betrayed by people we thought were our friends. We get aggravated by our enemies, those who seem to live to do us harm. We get sick and tired of being sick and tired. We get embarrassed. We fail at something we want to do. We feel abandoned and friendless and alone, all the while wondering, why does God let this happen to me? Or we hurt for other people. We hurt for the way that they're being treated unjustly or the way that they're suffering through some sickness or if they're victims of natural disaster that has no explanation and God hasn't given us a reason and we see they're just hurting. And when when we are confronted with these various circumstances, we want so bad for someone and something to blame, someone to scream at. We are frustrated without a target at which to direct all of this frustration. Well, what the Psalms do for us is they channel all of this to the only one who can really listen, the only one who can really understand, the only one who can do anything about it. So then, rather than just venting our spleen, rather than just becoming an incoherent rage monster, where you can't even form a thought, (laughs) the Psalms give us this precise, clear, concrete language that is to be directed to God as a complaint. And this, brothers and sisters, this complaining is holy and it's righteous and it's honorable. This is not sacrilegious. This is not unbelieving. In fact, this is faithful. I want you to look back at the psalm I read at the beginning. I picked this one just because it it kind of has all the elements of the prototypical, it, it is the prototypical psalm of lament. And all the psalms of lament have a similar structure. And if we can get the structure inside of us by praying and singing and meditating and learning and and internalizing the Psalms, we'll be able to then form our own thoughts when we're in the middle of that anger and rage and confusion. So if we look at the Psalm, all of the Psalms of Lament invoke God's 
name. He starts by saying, save me, O God, by your name. Later uh, in verse 6, he says, I will praise your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. Remember, God gives us his name so that we can call upon him. He is not a faceless, indifferent, distant God. He is close to us, and he gives us his name. Don't be superstitious about the name of God. Don't, don't, don't be like the Jewish mystics who write G-D as if they can't even write the name. God gave you his name. He gave you his covenant name, Yahweh, so that you could use it, so that you could call upon it. So the Psalms of Lament call God by name. And then there's a presentation of the complaint. A description of the distress. What does he say? Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me. Oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. So faithless people have sought to destroy me. He describes his complaint. And then he appeals to God to deliver, to intervene. Verse 4, he says, behold, God is my helper. He calls for God to deal with the evildoers. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. And then also, there's very often either a confession of sin or a protest of innocence. If it's very clear that my sin has caused my situation, you think of Psalm 51, where uh, Psalm 6 as well, where he says, no, I've done this and I deserve it. Please, God, forgive me. Or as in the Psalm we said, read last week, Psalm 109, Lord, I haven't done this. I don't deserve this. I haven't done the things that they're accusing me of. But it's somewhere, there's this dealing with uh, your personal standing before God. Either I have sinned or I haven't. And he works through that. He says in uh, verse 6, uh, I will freely sacrifice to you. So those, those who are doing this to me are not your worshipers, but I am, and my hands are clean. There's always a vow to praise God and thank him following the deliverance. In verse 6, he says, I will praise your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. You deliver me, and my, my tongue will sing your praises. There's an expression of confidence and trust in God and an exclamation of praise and thanksgiving. For he has delivered me out of all trouble and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemy. So, so just to summarize, we call upon God's name. We're not shy to cry out to him. We complain. We explain to him what we're distressed about. We appeal to him to deliver. We call for him to deal with the evil that is present. We confess our sin. If we have sinned, we, we say we're innocent if we're innocent of the thing we're being blamed for. And then we vow to praise God. We, we thank him and we, we glorify his name. That's, that's what the Psalms of Lament do. If you look at Psalm 50, Psalm 55 is a great Psalm of Lament. Let's, Psalm 56, if you are following along, Psalm 56 is another he repeatedly invokes God's covenant name. Uh, he, he starts, be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Um, in verse 3, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. In verse 10, in God, I will praise his word. In Yahweh, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. This, this prayer is like a, a car trying to get into gear as he says, in God, oh, I'll, I'll praise his word. In God, as, as if he can't even finish the sentence without an exclamation of praise. 
he articulates his complaint. He says, there are people who are twisting my words. There are people who are lying in wait to destroy me. He appeals to God to intervene and deliver and deal with the evildoers. He says, in anger, cast them down in verse 7 of Psalm 56. He protests his innocence again. He says, I'm not guilty of the things that they're charging me with. He expresses his confidence in God in verse 11. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? He vows to thank God after the deliverance, just as he did in Psalm 54. He says uh, in verse 12, vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. And he closes with an exclamation of thanksgiving. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the land of the living? These Psalms take on this similar shape. And you could read dozens and dozens of these Psalms of Lament. And maybe one element's not in this one and another element's not in this one, or maybe they're in a different order. But you take them all together and you see similar things keep coming up. And you see that these are the things that are appropriate to say and think and believe when you're in distress. These are the things God is saying, this is what I want to hear. This is what I want you to say. And so you only learn this shape by knowing the Psalms intimately. The Psalms give a holy shape to our confusing and conflicted thoughts. Secondly, they help us to come to grips with the parts of God that we don't know and don't understand. I try to hold myself to one Moby Dick reference per quarter. So it's that time again, and I'll I'll wait until January before I do it again. But a few weeks ago, I was uh, discussing the themes of, well, we were talking about what is the great American novel, and naturally we went to Moby Dick, and uh, I was discussing this with some ministers and some friends in Christian education, and we were talking about uh, the book, and one literature teacher, he described how he always saw the white whale as this uncontrollable, untamable, mysterious force of God, but he never realized how true that was, how God indeed is untamable, uncontrollable, undiscernible in some respects. He never realized how true that was until he had to deal with the life-altering, serious illness of a child. Life was normal and life was peaceful until this inexplicable, terrible life event happened. And after this, nothing was the same. And so the next time he went through that book with his students, he saw this whale who comes, wrecks everything, destroys the ship, leaves death in his wake, and then just swims away without cause, without explanation. And he said, you know, that felt like a pretty good example, as a pretty good illustration of what God just did to my life. He just, he just came And he turned it all upside down. And then he swam away without explanation. God has wrought this terrible calamity without rhyme or reason. And we're just left to put everything back together again. Now, God has reasons for what he does. God is not illogical. But he doesn't make his reasons always abundantly clear to us or clear to us right away. And the Psalms bear this out. Now, again, you may think, oh, I don't know if I could say that. Oh, I don't, I'm not sure that. Boy, that sounds scary to me, but how do the Psalms speak? Uh, If you're following along, I just want to glance at a few. Psalm 88. O Yahweh, God of my salvation, 
I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up, and I cannot get out. My eye wastes away because of affliction. You get a picture that he is in deep sorrow and abandonment. And what is his, what is his complaint to God? What does he say? Yahweh I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead if you kill me? Are you going to resurrect me? Are you going to do amazing things in my life after I'm dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Lord, you are keeping me in the dark. You're not giving me any answers. All of this has happened. I don't understand it. I don't get it. What are you doing? This doesn't make sense. If you're going to kill me, kill me. But, but don't keep me in this place, God. What are you doing? And you're not answering me. He says, I've reached out to you and I've cried out and still I don't have an answer. But to you, I've cried out, O Lord, O Yahweh. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I have been afflicted and ready to die for my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. And that's the end of the psalm. There's no resolution there. There's no, there's no oh, by the way, everything's going to work out okay and you'll get a puppy. I mean, there's nothing at the end that says, it's just, it just ends. What does Psalm 13 say? Look at, uh, if you're following along again, uh, look, look at Psalm 13. This one's shorter. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Yahweh, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. In this one, he says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow. So all that's left for me to do is praise you and trust you. But you see, these Psalms express grief and loss and anger. And they bring their cries before the face of the Lord. They don't merely vent. They trust God's promises, but they say, we're confused. We feel like you've forgotten us. We confess that you're doing things that we don't understand. And the Psalms reassure us that it's okay to express these things to God. And in saying them, we are indeed confessing. You know, you're, you're greater than a white whale. Your, your thoughts are above our thoughts and your ways are above our ways. But it still hurts to be on the receiving end of a bitter providence. And, and here's what the Psalms kind of orient us to, to, to think and to realize. 
That we have this tendency to want to be masters over everything. We have ourselves fooled into thinking that, in fact, we are in control over everything all the time. And if there's a problem, it must be because we didn't exercise certain authority over it. We must be able to solve every problem. We have to answer every question. But what we quickly find in knowing God and in searching out his ways and living in his world, there are questions he has not given us answers to. There are problems that we can't solve on this side of glory. There are puzzles that don't have solutions. I'm sorry. You have questions we don't have answers to. You have problems that there is no solution for. There are puzzles that don't have, don't, there's, not, there's not a formula. I'm sorry, there's not. And somehow, we have to make it with that reality. That frustrates us. That drives us crazy. I know, but the Psalms give us language and space to say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing, and it's driving me crazy. I, I don't get it, Lord. But the Psalms don't offer a solution to many of these problems. They do teach us, however, to live under a sovereign God who knows what he's doing. So just as that Psalm 88 that I read a minute ago just ends abruptly, that's because there's not an answer there. Just trust in God's sovereignty and know that he knows what he's doing. So the Psalms help us to deal with the parts of God that we don't understand and that we don't know and can't know. Thirdly, and this will be my last, last point here, knowing and singing the songs of lamentation this, this activity disciples us in suffering and sadness so that not only do we know how to suffer righteously, but we're able to minister to others who are suffering. If we ever sing a psalm of lamentation or recite one together on the Lord's Day in worship, you may say, you know what? This doesn't really express what I'm feeling today. I'm feeling rather good. Everything's going fine today. The car started. The house has heat. I've got shoes. I had food. Everything's fine. I, in fact, feel pretty good. Everybody's getting along. Nobody hit each other in the car this morning on the way to, on the way to church in the back seat. We're doing good. The Psalms remind us, though, that while that may be true for us in this moment, we still need to enter into the suffering of others for whom this is not true. We still need to enter in others' suffering. By the way, this also works the other way around. Maybe you don't feel particularly happy, but when it comes time to sing the songs of triumph and thanksgiving, you have to lift your voice. You have to sing and be truly thankful. What we say and sing, we weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. But the Psalms of Lamentation do, in fact, call us to bear each other's burdens, to pray with the hurting, to pray with the confused and the distraught. You and I can become so comfortable and at such ease in our lives that we get this detached perspective on suffering. When we view other people's disasters, we, and we view it often with very limited information, but we still say, feel confident to say at a distance, oh, I know where you messed up there. I know why you're dealing with that. I, it's so obvious to me why uh, you're dealing with that because you failed in all of these other areas. It's very apparent that this is all your fault. And if you'll give me 10 minutes, I'll tell you exactly where you failed. We feel very confident in doing that. You know, sort of like Job's friends, those wonderful characters who are so reliable. 
maybe sometimes the reason for someone's suffering is obvious. And maybe you do have this incredible spiritual gift of discernment and this incredible insight and you can see it. But what are we called to do in the middle of suffering? Is that when people need lectures? Is that when people need your, your scathing disapproval? When their house is shattered by an earthquake, do you first give them a lecture about building their house on a fault line? Or do you tell them just to be happy? You know, because Christians are always supposed to be happy. So rejoice. And if you cry about it, you're sinning. Is that what we say? Proverbs 25 says, like one who takes away a garment in cold weather and like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Did you hear that? Let me read it again. Like one who takes away a garment in cold weather and like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. It isn't loving and it's not compassionate to take someone's coat when it's snowing. And just like vinegar and soda don't mix together, unless you've got a science project and you want to make a volcano, that's the only time you mix them together. Why? Because you get a reaction. So expect a reaction when you tell someone with a heavy heart to just get over it or to just buck up. The Psalms are God-given instruments for conforming the church into the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and by entering into the Psalms of lament, we enter into suffering with other people. Just as Jesus came to share our human condition and enter into suffering with us, the Psalms teach us how to be sensitive to the suffering to remember the kinds of questions people are asking when they're suffering and to direct all of us to bring all of these things before the throne of God. We need a course and we need a lesson in sensitivity. The Psalms give us that. The Psalms give us a lesson, a master course in suffering and how rightly to express it. These are just a handful of the benefits of the Psalms of Lamentation. So my purpose over these Sundays that we're spending a couple of Sundays in the Psalms, my purpose is not to say everything that needs to be said and not to say everything that could be said, but to stir up in you a desire to inhabit the world of the Psalter. Yes, we sing metrical versions of the Psalms every Sunday, and that's a really big deal. That's a huge step forward. That's a wonderful thing. But I want us to take the next steps of internalizing these texts so that our thoughts and our attitudes and our behaviors are shaped by them. That you and I and our children are formed even by the words of lament, the words why and how long and How much do you think I can take? These words in the Psalms give us permission to speak in a similar way. And we can speak this way without fearing condemnation. We can speak this way without fearing humiliation by others when we lament and ask these questions. These Psalms give us permission to express our anger and confusion over what God has done in the world. But they give us holy language with which to do that. They allow us to be open and honest with each other and with God. They help us to articulate the pain and the grief that we go through and let us know you don't have to internalize it. You don't have to pretend it's not real. You don't have to push it all down where it can fester and ferment and get even more nasty. You don't have to do that. 
We can practice the biblical language of lamentation, and doing that lowers the risk of our venting our anger in dangerous and inappropriate ways. You see, why is everybody angry all the time? Why is everybody uh, road rage and shopping cart rage and, you know, donut rage and whatever kind of rage people have at each coffee rage? That's the one, you know, Starbucks. Everybody's angry before they get to the front of the line. Why? Uh, It's because we have no way of dealing with it the right way. But when we pray this way, we stand upon our union with Christ and our covenant with God. Let me ask you this. Who else could you talk to this way? Who else could you say these things to? Can you talk to your boss this way? Your spouse? Your parents? Your friends? Could you speak this way without fear of revenge or fear of abandonment? Maybe not. But your union with the Lord Jesus is so strong. Your covenant bonds with your heavenly Father are so strong, sealed by the Holy Spirit, that not only can you pray this way, but He wants you to pray this way. He wants to hear these words for you to sing and pray. He gave them to you. He inspired them by by His Holy Spirit. And He loves to hear them back at Him. So because of all this, I don't know how the Christian church can afford long to not sing and internalize and meditate upon and pray the Psalms of lament. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for being such a God that you welcome questions, that you welcome uh, complaint, that you ask us to bring these supplications before you. You're not not opposed to it, but in fact, you want to hear your bride's supplications and petitions. And so we as the church continue to bring these before you, and we ask you to hear us when we do. And we ask you to stir us up by your Holy Spirit so that we can pray boldly. And we know that you have promised that when we do, you change the world. You transform the world. So stir us up to ask you for the things that we need and for the answers to the questions that are so confusing and so muddled to us. Father, grant us your grace in all these ways, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.